Well, if you're keeping track, this is week number five, part number five in our study of the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to this church here at Philippi. Uh, Yes, we're in week number five and we're still in chapter one, uh, but that's okay. We're taking our time. I've wanted to digress a little bit on this middle section uh, because I've found so much just richness, so much gospel, so much profound and very relevant truth here in these verses. Um, And we've already noted uh, already how this gospel that that Paul is talking about is plays such an integral role in his life and especially as it relates to his relationship to this church. Uh, We've noted that the primary theme of this particular letter is the fact that Christ is the Christian's joy. This is what keeps the Christian grounded and rooted and fruitful and faithful uh, no matter what life's circumstances may be. And especially we've noted too that it's not just joy, this sort of fake or feigned happiness that Paul is, is aiming at, this sort of just put a smile on your face. It's specifically the joy that's found in Christ. Um, we've noted this a couple of weeks ago, but the thing that just keeps running through my mind in this particular letter is not just the prevalence of those words, joy, rejoicing, etc. It's actually the prevalence of that name, Christ. And in fact, Jesus and Christ together, or just Christ by itself, appears almost 50 times in four short uh, little chapters. It's, it's something that Paul is, of course, very adamant about, very passionate about. And he's making sure that whoever is reading these words knows exactly what he's talking about. It's joy in Christ, joy because of Christ, joy because of all the things Christ has done and accomplished. This is what he's settling on, resting on, sitting on. This is his foundation. And in fact, just to sort of give even more perhaps reason why we've stayed a little bit longer in chapter 1. There's 21 of those references to Christ just in chapter 1 alone. Almost half of all of the references to Christ in this chapter come in the first chapter. Or excuse me, in this letter come in the first chapter. So regardless, uh, there's no mistaking who was first and foremost in Paul's mind? It was Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone. This is, this is his lifeblood. This is his theme. We are talking about preachers being broken records. <laughs> this is Paul's broken record. It's Christ crucified. He says that to the Corinthian church, that I desire to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. <laughs> uh, and, and very truly, that's his theme throughout all of his ministry. Uh, in this chapter so far, we've noted in verses 1 through 11, as we sort of, just to give you an overview of where we are and kind of where we're going to go, and just so you can keep yourself situated, we've, we've noted that each chapter gives us a different sort of view of this idea how Christ is our joy. Chapter 1, we've said, is all about Christ as our life of joy. That he is our life of joy regardless of what season we are, and specifically how that life of joy is built in verses 1 through 11, we noted how, this, how the gospel of Christ here, as Paul is articulating it, fosters this joy of Christian community. And we noted how uh, he specifically is perhaps remembering all of those different instances and varied ways in which that joy was able to be fostered amongst a church that was really uh, started from very unlikely people. But we find ourselves now in the middle of verses 12 through 26 in which we are talking about the joy of Christian thanksgiving. 
The joy of Christian thanksgiving, I I believe, is found in here in verses 12 through 26. And we're sort of digressing in this middle passage just because of how Paul is very much embodying uh, this sort of joyful thanks that he is wanting these, these church members to see and to know. And I think that's what I think is so interesting here is that, is that Paul is not telling them, be thankful. He's showing them how, uh, how that actually looks. <laughs> In verses 12 uh, down through about uh, 15, he was talking about having joy despite delays. <laughs> he's delayed. He's put into prison. He's put in chains. And just think about the dichotomy of that. Paul is writing about joy. A guy who should not have joy because of his circumstances is writing, Hey, don't worry about me. All of this stuff that you think is hindering, that is stopping the gospel, that is actually confining the gospel in, is actually, as he says in verse 12, is actually falling out rather into the furtherance of the gospel. It's, it's completely opposite of how you think. The gospel is being advanced. Even as I'm in bonds, even as I'm in chains, even still, I, I'm tempted, half tempted to preach that again just because of how amazing it is. There's, there's the fact of what Paul is declaring. <laughs> He's talking about being in chains. And what I love is just thinking about this passage that they were trying to confine Paul, but all they did was give Paul a captive audience. <laughs> all those Roman soldiers. You know for sure that they didn't leave, they didn't clock out of work without hearing about Jesus the Christ. And in fact, he says that, that as he says in verse 13, even as I'm in chains, as I'm in bonds in Christ, my bonds in Christ are manifest in all of the palace. They're made known throughout all of the royal guard. Everyone knows why I'm here. It's because of Christ. His glory means so much more to me than anything else. Anyways, uh, the, this, this thanks despite delays. In verses uh, 16 down through verse about 19, we noted uh, last time, last time we were together, this giving thanks despite diversions. This idea that there's some speakers here who are preaching Christ, as he says there, out of envy and strife. And how distracting and how diverting for certain folks that could be. And actually Paul says, regardless, I'm rejoicing because Christ is preached. You know, it can be... Disconcerting, as we spent some time talking about last time. It can be really discouraging, I would say, when we hear about preachers fall away. They, you, you find out uh, sort of maybe weeks or years later that after they've uh, left the ministry, that you find out why. Some such scandal, some such horrible, reprehensible sin has forced them out of the ministry. And there can be a temptation, I think, to uh, sort of lose our identity in that. Lose our place. How can this preacher be false? And I think what Paul is here really nailing down is the fact that the truth of the gospel is true despite how false the messenger's life looks. And that's not to get preachers off the cook. It's actually to say, cling to the gospel, not to the one giving it. The voice doesn't really matter. It's the truth that they're preaching. I, 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 me, I, I don't mean anything. I could come and go. I could, uh, I could pass away. And the truth of the gospel is even more true. Don't cling to it because of who's speaking it. 
You see this a lot, and I'm not going to get on a tangent, but I'm sort of there anyways. But you can, you can, you can kind of get lost in sort of like the celebrity culture of certain pastors. And I think it's great that the fact that certain celebrity pastors, if you will, I hate that terminology, but regardless, that certain celebrity pastors have a station, they have a status. And praise God that they can be delivering the good news uh, to so many, reaching so many with that amazing message. But I think the fallacy of that too is that so many cling to him or to those who are in those positions, not because of what they're saying, but just because of their charisma, because of who they are. And when those particular speakers fail, those followers will fall away. I think you see that in Christ's ministry. (laughs) He was weeding out people all throughout his ministry because he didn't want people just following him for what they can get from him, what they can get out of him. They want, he wanted followers who are following him by faith because of what he was preaching, the truth that he was delivering. The same, I think, as what Paul is here saying here. He can give thanks despite that. Because the truth of Christ prevails regardless of how many messengers fall. (laughs) Christ crucified is still true even if the preacher falls away into scandal. We don't don't jettison that message just because of the messenger has. Anyways, I think, I think that's a, to me, that's one that's very relevant. One that's very uh, timely considering the day and age in which we live. There's a catalog of preachers who have fallen away. And there's so, I'm going to get on a tangent. There's, there's a tendency that we fall into this pattern that because he's fallen, we need, to, we need to get into a different mode of preaching. Uh, we call it sort of semi-Pelagianism. Pelagian was an old heretic, we might say, who thought that our salvation came apart by, yes, grace, but also our effort. And that we need to be sure that we're producing enough effort to get this grace that saves us. And I've seen this uh, already sort of being pandered about with certain uh, preachers who have fallen. And, we, and there's some who come and say, look, we need to change the message because it's too free. It's, it's, it's making people lazy. I would say, no, we don't need to preach something different. We need to keep honing in on Christ. <laughs> we need to keep championing that message. We don't need to, uh, to get away from it. We need to preach it more. We need to preach it more until the day approaches that Jesus saves sinners because sinners are all that there are. And he saves them precisely because he is a sovereign savior who has done everything for their salvation. Christ crucified, period. This is what Paul wanted to make known. It didn't matter who fell away. And yes, this is not in my notes, but it's okay. Think about all the people that fell away that Paul talks about in those letters, especially the letters to uh, Timothy. Talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander and Demas. There's several others that he talks about. I, I think about those guys, especially because they were with Paul. They ministered with Paul. They were perhaps, perhaps they preached with Paul in various places. I think in an in a, in a, in a interesting way, perhaps, he's almost referencing those types of individuals. Did their falling away change what we have preached? No. Christ is still true. And we can still rejoice because that message prevails regardless. We can give thanks despite diversions, despite delays. And in here, we've, we, we noted last time, but I wanted to sort of focus again 
on verses 21 through 26 that we can give thanks despite death. Only because this particular passage is just one of the most alarming passages, I think, of the whole New Testament and the whole Bible. Some of these words ought to just reach out and grab our souls with how powerful they are. And in fact, we ought to be stunned and shocked. You know, uh, often throughout the Psalms, uh, the, the, the psalmist David or whoever it was, Asaph or whoever, uh, is writing. And they come to this amazing, immaculate truth. And they insert that word, Selah, which was a musical term often being translated to pause, have a break in everything. So if it's being used in a liturgical fashion, all of the music would drown away. All of the speakers would stop and there would be silence. Imagine if we did that. <laughs> We were singing like, and can it be? And we come to that third verse where it talks about no condemnation. Now I dread. And we just stop for a minute and just let that thought sink in. That's sort of the picture. Personally, if if you forgive me for adding to scripture, I think we should insert a salah after verse 21. Where Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Think about what he's talking about. For to me to live is Christ, and to die in ga- is gain. This is a testimony that ought to stir us. That ought to stir us to our bones. And also think about what we've already just kind of covered. That Paul is talking about this joy of Christian thanksgiving. It can, it, this is a testimony that's true. He's sort of exemplifying it and not just explaining like the particulars of it. He's now sort of ex- being its example, this joyful Christian Thanksgiving life. He's being its example. And now he's brought to the fullest conclusion that you have to come to with such a confession. That if you truly believe that Christ is your joy and, and no matter the season of life, it brings you to this point where you have to come to this confession. That it's true, whether it be in life or whether it be in death. Verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. That this situation will turn to my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope. That in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness... As always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Truly believing that Christ is your joy brings you to that point and naturally ushers you to make that confession. This is something Paul just said. This is, I think, something he lived. This was Paul's operating motive Go with me to Acts chapter 20 real quick. I just want to read, just so you can get into your mind's eye, just the fact that this isn't just like a throwaway sort of testimony of Paul. I know that you perhaps know that, but just think about Paul's life. And here in Acts chapter 20, he spent a number of years with the church at Ephesus. And here he's sort of making this farewell decree to the elders there that he spent so many hours, so many days, so many, uh, so many Sabbaths with. And look at verse 22 as he's making this testimony, as he's going away, departing off to his next assignment. Verse 22, and now 
Paul says, behold, I go bound in the spirit. I'm captive to the spirit of Christ unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things there that shall be befall me there. Stop there for a second. I am bound. I'm a slave to the spirit that I must needs go here. And I have no idea what to expect. No idea what lies ahead of me. I don't know the things that shall befall me. Save, verse 23, that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. I wish I... I wish I would have that sort of eloquence, number one. But also, number two, I wish and I pray that I can sincerely say this when I come to the end of my course. That nothing moves me, nothing shakes me, that regardless of what the next years hold, that I am bound, I'm a captive to this Holy Ghost who witnesses that this gospel is true. And that I don't count my life as dear, as something to be grasped and clung to and white knuckled with my ability. Actually, I can release it because I am held by the Holy Ghost. And my only position, my only motive, my only passion is to testify what? The gospel of the grace of God. May this be said of me. May this be said of all of us. As Paul is here testifying, as as long as there was breath in his lungs, he's going to preach this message. You know that Christ is going to be preached. And I was thinking about, I, I love that phrase, none of these things move me. <laughs> and I was thinking about some, uh, just some other, to get into your mind's eye, that this isn't just something Paul is about. This is something that the Bible is about. This is a, a theme of scripture, that those who tie their lives to the Christ, to the King, to the one above all things, they can have this sort of uh, courageous Eucharistic faith, this idea that we can be actively grateful regardless of what is in front of us. This is a theme of Scripture. It's not just something that the Apostle Paul is evidencing. This is something that's happened, and in fact I'm going to show you, that has happened even all the way back in the Old Testament. Actually, turn with me. Esther. A book that's not often visited, and shame on us for not visiting that book more often. Esther chapter 4, it's, if you know, it's right before Job, if you're, if you're looking for it. Esther chapter 4. Esther, really fascinating book. No mention of the word God throughout these chapters. He kind of appears in the background. And that's sort of the point of this letter, or the point of this book. It's sort of a book that's meant to show us, quote, everyday life and how it operates and how people in everyday life operate according to faith. Haman, here in chapter 4, this is the midst of the plot to destroy the Jews. He's already have this plot in motion with the king of Persia. And there's nothing seemingly standing in the way of her people, Esther's people's annihilation. Except, that is, Esther's own courage. 
this courageous, Eucharistic, great gratitude sort of exampling faith. Notice Esther verse four or verse sixteen of chapter four. Or uh, let's go back to verse 15. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go, gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, uh, three days, night or day. I also and my ma- uh, maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go unto, in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. This was her testimony. This was her example of of Eucharistic faith, we might say. She grapples with this reality of of uh, either the court-sanctioned genocide of her people or risking her own life to intercede for her people. This, This idea that this audience with the king is not according to the law. It's almost like barging in on the CEO without having a meeting appointment first. Except much more serious, because if she goes in without requesting an audience, she could be executed. And notice her testimony. (laughs) If I perish, I perish. Or we could say, like the Apostle Paul, none of these things move me. I do not count my life as dear. She's exampling faith in one who is way more sovereign, way more, quote, in control than she is. What a testimony of faith by this one Esther here in a place that isn't her home. And yet she's dealing with situations and circumstances that are against her. And yet she is giving thanks despite certain death. And of course we know that this leads to her people's eventual exoneration and deliverance. If you read the rest of the book, which we should preach through that. (laughs) Let's mark that down. It's a great example of faith. From one that is almost unexpected. But also another example. Go with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. You perhaps might know where I'm going with this. But I love this instance. Daniel chapter 3. And I I know you probably don't believe me when I say this. But it is one of my favorite chapters. And just one, one of the clearest pictures of the gospel. I love... I love the fact that, that when they, so we know Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're, they're faced with this predicament. Do they bow and save their own skins or do they resist and, and risk being thrown into the furnace? These Hebrew 3, they're, they're faced with that. <laughs> they're faced with that sort of option. Those sorts of uh, options are in front of them. And what do they do? They courageously stand by their conviction that there's one stronger than Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, even as fearsome as he appears, as infuriating as he is, even in front of their very faces, they say, there's one who's stronger than you. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, 
Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Can you imagine? (laughs) This is one of the testimonies that just stirs me and gives me goose pimples. This idea, hey, you can bow down, save your life, compromise your faith, yes, but you will save your soul. At least in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, because he set himself up as God. Or you can you cannot bow down, and you risk being burned. And what is their testimony? We believe that our God is a miracle-working God. That if He wants to, He can snap His fingers, and we will be brought out of this fiery furnace, and we will be delivered out of Your hand. But even if He doesn't do that. Even if he doesn't perform a miracle that we really are wanting him to perform, we still know and believe that this one is stronger. This one is more sovereign. He is a God who, can, who has complete control over our lives. They were giving thanks despite death, staring them in the face. And to me, one of the best uh, sort of pictures of, of the way that we are saved, by the way, comes in this chapter where they are brought out of the furnace by that mysterious fourth figure, this one who appears to be the Son of God or a Son of God. And I love the testimony where it says that they were brought out and they didn't even have the smell of smoke on them, they were in a furnace. And not even a hair on their head was singed or their clothes smelled like smoke. You want to talk about a miracle? Have you ever been around a campfire? (laughs) Just sitting there and your clothes smell horrible afterwards. You have to wash them a couple times maybe to get that, that stench of smoke out of them. Have you ever tried to burn a hair? It burns like that (laughs) and it stinks. They were brought out with nary a singe. This is a miracle, but if not is their testimony. That to me is one that transcends all of the other things that they might have done or said. And here, the same with Esther. If I perish, I perish. And the same with Paul. None of these things move me. Here, this is the testimony of Scripture. That they're declaring that, yes, by their lives and even more so by their deaths, they are going to reverberate and resound the truth that Christ is their joy and nothing can shake them from that. (laughs) You notice it's the same heartbeat in each instance. God, Christ alone is our joy and his glory transcends my little life. Again, going back to Philippians 1, this is Paul's testimony. This is what he's saying there in verses 19 and 20. When he's saying that, that yes, I've, I have so much confidence that I will be delivered. That my salvation will be through your prayer and the supply, the furnishing of the Holy Spirit. And it is my hope that I will be brought out. And that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But he says that with all boldness as always so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. Whether it be by life or by death. You see he's almost reiterating what the Hebrew 3 said. (laughs) I'm going to rejoice if God delivers me. But if not... (laughs) Christ is going to be magnified in my life or in my death. 
But if not, if I perish, I perish. None of these things move me. He's echoing the same thing of being grateful, of giving thanks, despite having death stare at him in the face. He was going to carry on unreservedly, having no reservations to go on magnifying Christ. It's not often that you hear this sort of conviction. In someone. Of someone having such certainty of what they believe that they're willing to die for those certainties. I, uh, maybe I'll just, I'll just speak from my heart. Uh, I, I don't know if, if, if I w- could have that same sort of boldness. I want to believe that I would. Gun to my head. Will you say you believe in Jesus or renounce? <laughs> I don't know. I've never had that happen. I hope that that doesn't happen in my lifetime. I hope that I would have the same sort of boldness that those pastors up in Canada have evidenced so far. With so many coming down and cracking down on holding worship services. And the one was given the option. Did you hear about that? The one was given the option. Renounce your position of being a preacher of the gospel and you can be released. You could be let out of prison. He said, no. No, I will not resign what God has called me to do. We have firsthand testimony of what it looks like for someone to say, but if not, if I perish, I perish. None of these things move me. My only mission in being in commission in this life is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I pray for that resolve. (laughs) I pray for that ability. And here Paul is is testifying to the same thing. He's, he's testifying to Christ even at the disregard of his own self-preservation. Isn't that so foreign? This is the resounding confession that he's making. Christ is my joy. You, you, you want to know why he can have such unmovable joy despite death, despite all the diversions and distractions and delays? It's because his joy wasn't tethered uh, to something here and now, and it wasn't able to be touched by anything here and now. <laughs> it wasn't in things. It wasn't in position. It wasn't in status. It wasn't in anything earthly. It wasn't in anything to uh, echo Solomon's words under the sun. His joy was precisely in someone who sat on the throne of heaven. (laughs) Therefore, it couldn't be touched by anything that happened to him on this earth. Such as what allows him to say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death (laughs) didn't scare him. I don't know if that's something that scares you, if you've given any thought to that. The most famous preacher who's ever lived, Charles Spurgeon, was a man who was haunted by the fear of death. If you read a lot of his personal stories, Spurgeon's sorrows, so to speak. This idea of dying, 
Even though he knew the truth that dying was gain, just as Paul is testifying here. And here, I think we have evidence, the truest, firmest, most, we could say the deepest resolve of that confession. If Christ is your joy, then death is gain. In fact, that's what Paul is saying, that if I die, it's to my advantage. It's far better if I were to die. Because I know then that this body that is tormented, as he talks about in Galatians, as he talks about in 2 Corinthians with this thorn in the flesh, this body would be made new, be made like Christ's body. Perfect and glorious in every way. He would have a body that's free from that sin that plagues him in Romans 7 where he cries out, Who will deliver me from this body of death that vacillates between resounding hope and reprehensible wickedness? Who will save me from that? He knows that once he passes away, he has a body that is free from that, that is free from sickness, that is free from sorrow, that is free from seeing all of those who are around him fall away, pass away. And yet, even still, I think one of the most remarkable facts about this text is that Paul says, even though I know how much better it is that to be in glory, and I believe that with my soul, he says, I'm still, as he says in verse 23, in a straight betwixt two. I'm in a catch 22. Because I know how much better it is, but I know how necessary it is for me to be here. Because Christ has me here. Christ has me in this place for a reason. Therefore, he makes that testimony that I will, if I'm, if I'm allowed to stay, I know it's more needful. I will abide in the flesh. I'm in a straight betwixt two, verse 23, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful, it's more necessary for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. He feels... <laughs> This ministerial tug at his own heart to remain in this life. But Paul is here declaring with all boldness, Christ is my joy and my people, he's saying to them. This is the joy that you have in the gospel of the Christ. It can be your joy too. And this is something that I think that only those who have their lives been, uh, been captured and captivated by the gospel can declare. Only those who know that Christ is their joy can have joy despite all the delays and diversions and the death that life brings our way. Only those who find their life and their joy in Christ can face death fearlessly. Why? Because as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, they know that this same Christ is the one who has abolished death already. He's put death to death, 1 Corinthians 15. There's no power that it has over those to whom death is already a defeated enemy. A defanged lion. It has no sting as Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Death, where is your sting? It has no power. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
H.A. Ironside says, death is no enemy to the one to whom Christ is all. To live gives opportunity to manifest Christ down here. To die is to be with Christ. Nothing which could be more precious. This is Paul's testimony. This is the testimony that you and I can have as well. When the gospel is nestled in our souls. <laughs> because the gospel furnishes us with the same thing. The Holy Spirit of Christ. Who furnishes us with the comforting expectation and hope. That we know that Christ's truth prevails regardless. Christ then is our joy. And we can give thanks. Despite all the delays the distractions, the death. We can live this life, this Eucharistic life, a life of active gratefulness at all times. Why? Because Christ is our joy. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.